The A16Z Podcast is a show that is produced by Andreessen Horowitz, an investment fund based in Silicon Valley. The A16Z Podcast covers topics including software engineering, biology, media, cryptocurrencies, and entrepreneurship. A16Z is one of the most popular podcasts about technology. Sonal Choksi is the editor-in-chief at Andreessen Horowitz and the showrunner for the A16Z podcast. For five years, she's been interviewing entrepreneurs, engineers, artists, and investors, exploring how software has increasingly impacted our lives and transformed society. The success of the A16Z podcast is largely a result of Sonal's high editorial standards and her ability to ask the right questions and drive conversations in fruitful directions. Much of the content of Software Engineering Daily has been shaped by A16Z, and I've listened to every single episode. Sonal Choksi joins today's show for a conversation about podcasting and technology. Sonal shares her beliefs for why the podcast medium has taken off, and describes how her background in education, ethnography, and technology have shaped the completely distinct voice and flavor of the A16Z podcast. Sonal Choksi, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. I'm so excited to be here, especially you, since I feel like I know you. Well, it's, it's mutual. I mean, most of the time with a podcast, you have the asymmetric intimacy. We actually have yes. symmetric, asymmetric intimacy. That's I right, because we actually know each other. Right. It's really funny when people come up to you and they feel like they know you, and you're like, I don't know who you are, but it's also great at the same time. <laughs> I've been there. Okay. <laughs> you host the A16Z podcast. Why did it make sense for a venture capital firm to start a podcast? Yeah, it's a really good question. So first of all, the broader context for the podcast is why doesn't a VC firm have an editorial operation? And the reason for that is that A6NZ has always had a culture of writing and communicating and sharing ideas well before we built an editorial operation. That was here before I even joined. And then, you know, there's this trend of a lot of, I used to joke when I was at, I was at Wired at the time that it's really funny, VCs are the new editors. And I kind of said it in a snarky way because I felt like, who are these people that think they know what's up and all, us editors have more things to say. But then I realized that they were talking about more leading versus lagging indicators. And I got frustrated because I felt like I'm focusing on lagging indicators in my narrative work. And I would like to go back to leading indicators, which is why I came to A6 and Z. So before I joined, there was another journalist who was here and I joined as the editor. And the model just sort of shifted to more editing other people than storytelling in the third person. So we went to a first person model. And that takes me to why a podcast. So to answer your question, why we did a podcast, it actually existed three months before I even joined. And the it was, I believe, the brainchild of Chris Dixon and then Kim Milosevic and Michael Copeland helped with getting it off the ground. And it was intended to start off as just sort of hallway conversations. And, and Dixon was an early blogger. And so I believe that podcasting was sort of potentially the next evolution of blogging and being able to talk intimately. It really started as an experiment, but then I took over shortly after joining in the production and it's been growing since. What lessons from the history of blogging apply to podcasting? Oh, I love that question, Jeffrey. I'm so glad you're asking that because I think about this all the time. So it's funny, well, a lot of times when people complain about the end of blogging or they nostalgically think of the heyday of blogging, I kind of roll my eyes a little because I feel like, you know what, you're just missing talking to each other. 
what I love about podcasting is there's something more inclusive about it that anybody can listen to a podcast on a mobile phone. And it's not to say that blogging wasn't accessible, because if you think about the history of the printing press and how the printing press made what were formerly very elite ideas more available in the form of mass books, similarly, blogging sort of took what were, quote, formerly elite ideas in the form of certain media outlets and articles into the form of mass blogs. But there was, even though I loved the early waves of blogging, a little bit of elitism to it, where it felt it was very much a bunch of bloggers who would talk to each other. One of the parallels in podcasting is that in many ways, podcasting is the next evolution of blogging because of the intimacy. Podcasts are so intimate, you're really in someone's ear. The other similarity is the authentic nature of the communication. You don't have to write like a five paragraph essay and have it perfectly edited. So podcasting is very similar in that sort of you're really hearing someone's voice. You can't fake that. But what's different is that podcasting is to me like a shared community and it's a movement. Like people are really following a movement. You have a completely different relation to the people you're listening to. To go deeper there, A16Z recently had a series about podcasting. There was Mm -hmm. a a long PDF, there was a long article, and you did an hour-long episode with Connie Chan and Nick Kwa. Did you have any reflections on the spirit of podcasting in its modern form today from all that research and that grinding on the data? I mean, you had an amazing post, which is on Podsheets and your view on open source podcasting. You also did like a great overview of like all the different players in the industry. And I thought that was great. No, I loved it. And very aligned with a lot of my own views too. So the podcast about podcasting, it was me and Connie and Nick, as you noted, and Nick is known for doing Hot Pod Newsletter, which is one of my favorites. And I know you're nodding, it's one of yours too. And the report on investing in the podcast ecosystem in 2019 grew out of our internal deal team and was authored by Lee Jin, who's on our deal team. And she works very closely with Andrew Chen, who's one of the general partners who's really interested in investing in podcasting startups. And then Avery Segal also authored a section in that report on podcasting in China, because it's huge in China. And he works very closely with Connie Chan, who's very interested in investing in podcasting startups and new media startups as well. And then the third author was Bennett Carocchio, who did a lot of research on that report. And they also really culled a lot of the research out there. So I want to give a shout out to Edison Research. They produced the Infinite Dial study and Tom Webster, I've been following his work for like 15 years, is the main lead there. And and it's a really thoughtful report. So that's the context for that report. I think the big takeaways at a very high level are that podcasting is hitting a quote inflection point, that it's becoming more mainstream now. I actually still don't think it's there. It's still very early days. So my big reflection on modern podcasting is that it is becoming more mainstream, but it is still phase one because we don't have the infrastructure that we need to really do podcasting well. And by that, I mean, it still lacks discovery. I mean, how do you find a podcast? How do people find software engineering daily if they don't already know about it? Word of mouth. Exactly. And as you know, one of the other ways people find podcasts, the number one way to discover podcasts is to listen to other podcasts. So that's basically how people find out. Then there's a complete lack of episodic discovery. And this is one of my big pet peeves. I don't believe everybody wants to follow every single episode of a podcast if it's not a serialized narrative show. They want topical things. One of the things that really made the a 6 and podcast work in the early days is we would drop five episodes a week. And they would be on topics as diverse as quantum computing to emojis to, you know, whatever the topic is. So what would happen is if you're not interested in those things, a variety of listeners would self-select for which one of the five they wanted to listen to. And so we continually grew our audience in this way. So what if I want all the podcasts on quantum computing, crafting, 
fantasy novels and romance, which are all things I'm interested in. <laughs> kind of weird combo, but I can't find that now. So that's missing. But what's some good news on this, so talking about modern podcasting, is that Google recently announced that they are transcribing podcasts, which is a huge, important move because now finally all that sort of dark voice, for lack of a better phrase, is going to finally be indexed, which will help a ton with the discovery side. How would you encapsulate the competitive dynamics between Apple, Spotify, and Google? First of all, none of this is investment advice. I am not an investor. I'm commenting on mainly the trends of these companies being really containers of interesting models that are happening in the podcasting industry. So it's funny because I've never seen this before where three platforms that all have the opportunity to own a space seem to be really doing very different things. So Spotify is really interesting because they have very openly said they want to really grow podcasting. The CEO, Daniel Ek, is on the public record talking about in a speech he gave this year about what all the investments they're making. So, you know, they acquired Gimlet, obviously. They acquired Anchor, all people whose work I've been following for a long time. And they're realizing that audio is music and podcasting. And they're two different things. And that's super important. And they're obviously clearly thinking about the user-generated side of things, hence the acquisition of Anchor. So a lot of people will often say that they have become the YouTube of podcasting, which they have a lot of potential for. But I think what's really interesting about Spotify is they've always had really creative ways of thinking about a person's whole audio profile for the day. And I believe a third piece of this that is not currently in there is audiobooks, because to me, the definition of podcasting, and Connie believes this too, is it's not just technically quote podcasts, like it's audiobooks, it's other audio, it's spoken word, basically, not words that are sung. Spotify has a really unique opportunity because of their model with playlists and their ability to do more creative things on the recommendation side. Then Google will have a really interesting play because as their model has always been to index the world's information, the ability to index podcasts is huge. And I recently heard that there are more people coming to podcasts via Google than via Spotify. Now, I want to double check this stat. Google has an advantage on the transcription side and being able to search and find podcasts. And then the third player, Apple, huge fan of that team, by the way, James Boggs and those guys. In the past, Apple hasn't really invested deeply in podcasting. You know, the classic story, there's like two people in the department or five people or whatever it is. It seems that they are now. But the thing about Apple is that because of their big position on protecting user privacy, they're not going to do some of the things that podcasters want, which is like the ability to communicate with fans, you know, like to be able to send out an email, for instance, update to your fans. And by the way, none of these three are hosting platforms. They're all distribution platforms, right? None of them are. You can't actually upload your podcast to Spotify, Google or Apple. They're basically taking sucking in all the feeds. What is your vision for podcasting becoming social? And is it an inevitability? I do believe podcasting should be social inherently, even though it's not. I know Lee, our partner on the deal team, also believes in social podcasting. So far, one of the leading social podcasting apps is Breaker. But I think that there's a lot of interesting innovations to still happen in this, in this space. I'm interested in two things on that front. I definitely want the graph of people. I mean, there's a classic thing. You always ask other people, what other podcasts do you listen to? And find out through word of mouth, like, here are the podcasts that I want to hear. But I'm also interested in people coming around live events around podcasting and sort of coming together in that frame. But for me, another piece of it is as a creator, how do you communicate with your fans? Like right now, I'm in a room with two people sometimes recording something and I can't engage with them. So when I go out in public and they're like, we want selfies, we want to hang out. It's really cute and really weird and completely mind boggling that this happens. 
But I would love to be able to continually, like, because if you think about it, it's again a movement. You're creating a worldview and a glimpse into our world and how to think about tech. Imagine if we could send updates to them via apps and various things. Was there a particular episode of the A16Z podcast where you walked away having your mind significantly changed about something? Well, let me start by telling you some of my all-time favorites, <laughs> just off the top of my Wonderful. head. And it's funny because you know how they always say, like, they're all your babies, so you got to love them all equally? It's true. So my favorite episodes are the ones that are an extension of the things that I love. Very early on, one of the episodes, maybe two years in, was on emojis with Jenny Eight Lee and Fred Benenson. I remember that one. Here's what I loved about that episode. To me, it was the heart of the A6 and Z podcast. It, <laughs> no, I, it sounds crazy. It was, emojis, no, it was. how does it come together? Totally. Well, here's why. First of all, people don't realize you use emojis every single day. Like honestly, my three-year-old niece can use emojis on her phone. But a lot of deep tech goes into that. And governance. And governance, exactly. That was what we talked about. And so that's what's really interesting is it plays out against this backdrop of one of my all-time favorite themes, which is this tension between open and closed. So the trade-offs between if you have an open standardized thing, you can all see the same emojis. Because as you know, not everyone can see the same emojis depending on what platform or phone they're using. But if you have a closed proprietary system, you have more control over the design and some of the creative elements like within Apple. So it's really a fascinating backdrop to come up against. And then the governance component, like Jenny advocated for getting a dumpling emoji because her observation was that there's all these dumplings and in international cuisines all around the world, like a samosa is an Indian dumpling, basically. And there isn't a dumpling emoji. And that's insane. So she went through this entire governance process to propose a dumpling emoji. So what I love about it, too, is it's also about inclusion because you have a lot of honestly, not necessarily diverse developers developing these emojis. And so to have the ability to see a brown hand or a dumpling emoji enter the set is so amazing. And this is why it encapsulates the A6 and Z podcast to me, is it's the intersection of technology, people, politics, context, culture, and humanity. I just love that. Theme. That is literally the heart of the A6NC podcast. So that's one of my all-time favorite episodes for sure. And probably another one of my favorite episodes that changed my mind to mm -hmm. answer your question would probably be maybe a podcast with Yuval Harari, actually, because, you know, he was the author of Homo Deus and before that Sapiens. And we we're one of the one of his only stops in the Bay Area, which is amazing because we we're one of the few podcasts that actually really moves book sales for publishers, which I'm very proud of. And I met with a lot of publishers who verified that factoid. But so Yuval Harari is best-selling author. And one of his interesting ideas is about in the future, people will be augmented by technology that enhances certain things. And I had always thought of that as a really good thing. But then he talked about what happens when more people can afford a certain type of enhancement versus another. And I was like, oh, my God, that's another way that real life and politics plays out in technology. But one of my other favorite episodes is with my friend Ross Anderson at The Atlantic. And one of my fellow editors on the team that I hired two years ago, Hannah Tidnam, we talked to him about an article he wrote about geoengineering at a mass scale. And what I love mm. about that podcast is it's not just about the technology, but it's about the importance of marketing technology and the importance of narrative and vision mm. in telling a story about technology. And then the other favorite, an open source that I've done with Michael Rogers and Nadia Iqbal. And the recurring theme you'll find through all these favorite episodes is it's all about how humanity intersects with technology. Mm. And it's essentially the ethnography of technology, which is a defining signature of my work. Mm. When you look at the established media channels like an NBC or a CNN, the barriers to entry for building 
a large media channel have almost completely gone away. We now have all the infrastructure we need. We have YouTube, we have the podcast infrastructure, we have we can buy cameras, we can buy mics. It's not that expensive. We can outsource to editors. It's not that bad. If you are in this environment with essentially unlimited resources, what's your vision for how the A16Z media empire could look? <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up the TV classic model because what you didn't say is, so what I love about podcasting, blogging, all of these technology shifts, these the new media shifts, is it is absolutely about the democratization of access. Almost anybody can pick up a phone and record a podcast. We have a company we're investors in called Descript, where you can actually edit podcasts in a Word doc-like way. That's extremely democratizing, honestly, because you don't necessarily need a sound engineer to do everything for you. There's the ability to distribute everywhere, just like posting on YouTube. But in the podcast ecosystem is all about feed. So you can get the feeds into every app out there. It's super democratizing in that way. But, and here's the big but, and this is the reason that channels like TV shows have not gone away. What's missing is curation and a curatorial point of view. And so what people often miss when they talk about this massive user-generated content is we crave more lists of where, what podcast should I listen to? What episode should I listen to? What are the top 10 for this year? Where do I find the five best episodes on this particular topic? Everybody wants curation. And that is desperately still missing. When I think of the A6 and Z podcast, just like every channel has a network of people and shows, we are expanding into more and more new shows. So back to the media empire question. It's about us not just filling a gap in what's not happening in tech coverage today, but offering a fresh take, the leading versus lagging indicators that brought me here in the first place on technology trends and shifts, and more importantly, the thing that's so close to my heart, and I think the firm's heart, how it changes people's lives and culture. Like, how is technology shaping culture? Because it's everywhere, in everything. You know, even the emojis my three-year-old niece uses, as I mentioned. So that is what the heart of the media empire is about. It's about helping understand the changes that are happening through tech. How do they affect people's lives? How do they affect businesses? How do they affect industries? How do they affect the future of work? How do they affect how you play, live? And so how do you tell those stories? And that's one of the goals in expanding the platform of the content that comes out from us. When A16Z was started, it was modeled after CAA, which mm -hmm. is a talent agency. Why does it make sense for a venture firm to model itself after a talent agency? So Mark Andreessen has talked a lot about this, and so has Ben Horowitz, because Ben actually interviewed Mike Ovitz, who was the co-founder of CAA. And those are both available on the A6NZ podcast. That's how I found out about the book, by oh, the great. way. The book was Good. amazing. See, this is what I'm talking about. We move book sales. So to answer your question, they have better answers to that question about how they think about talent. We actually did an episode where they talk about tech talent in the ecosystem. But here's what I would say about it. Just like I'm talking about technology is not just objects and code and like sort of these clinical algorithms. It's about people. And the startup is not just about the founder CEO. It's about the team that they build, the leadership that they, this team that, that scales their company, the talent that comes in to work and build something together, the people who listen to the consumers and users of a product. So it's all about people at the end of the day. So talent is everything. Well, one thing that stood out to me from that Mike Ovitz book was he worked so hard and he had these reflections in the book about maybe he worked too hard. And it made me just think about how we can get wrapped up into our vision so deeply that we become workaholics. Mm -hmm. And part of his book was reflecting a bit on that. Like, mm -hmm. 
wondering to himself, did he work too hard? Did he need to alienate the kinds of people that he alienated mm -hmm. throughout that story? When you're in an environment like this, like this is how I'm feeling kind of these days, is like when you're drinking from the technological fire hose and mm -hmm. it's so fun, you know, it can be so addicting. How do you find personal balance? Well, I, I, so I have a really strong point of view on this. I'm going to go to town on this one. So here's the deal. I think people have a lot of false religious debates about this topic. It actually ties to podcasting. So my background before I even moved into tech at all and media was in child and developmental psychology and education, cognitive psychology. And one of the things that I studied was how kids would interact with technology, you know, learning new methods. And a lot of the debates that play out among my friends who are mothers is around screen time and whether children should, you know, have X amount of screen time or not. And here's the thing I say, all these debates, whether it's like work-life balance or screen time or not, they're such black and white religious debates and they, the conversation lacks so much nuance and it drives me nuts because it's actually not what the person does, it's how and why they do it. It's not a bad thing if a kid watches a TV show. It's not a bad thing if someone works hard or decides to play hard. It's not like a moralistic good or bad thing. What is an issue is the way and when and how a person does it. So if you're working hard because you have psychological issues of withdrawing from your family and you can't deal, that's something you need to figure out and work out in therapy or whatever it is. If your kid is watching TV and so glued that it's like their eyes glass over, that's dangerous. But if they're watching TV and having screen time in a way that's super engaged and they're learning something and they're interacting and it just so happens that the forum is not in a classroom from a teacher, because honestly, think about a teacher in a classroom. That's a unidirectional communication. It's like the teacher is teaching a group of 30 kids. It's mm. one to many. How is that any different than a television in many ways? Mm. And so I think we tend to paint a very broad, blunt brush when we have these conversations. There's a lot more nuance to it. Now, tying it back to podcasting and media, Media and technology pervade our lives. I think people who fight the cell phone world and have these articles and books around, we, we need to turn off our cell phones and oh my God, our lives are different. People have been saying that for years about the same exact thing, whether it was newspapers or books. You know, I probably suffered more in my life in terms of being an introvert and isolated because I'm such a book reader than because of my phone. So all of these things are universal and they've been around for generations and generations and generations. But here's what I think is beautiful about podcasting. Podcasting takes us back to our oral roots of storytelling. And now, because of the ability to mass distribute this beyond a fire and like a small group of people, we can now mass distribute this to millions or thousands of voices. So in a way, if the next phase of podcasting is figuring out how now to bring those voices back to the creators of podcasts, where you can have this fire-like communication and storytelling and sharing of ideas, in a more interactive way, oh my God, just this is still the phase one. Like who knows what can happen next? So that's my way of saying I am not good at balance and I'm okay with that. And I think that media is actually a very helpful thing. What I love about podcasting is the focus on the question and answer dynamic. Yeah. And in doing lots of podcasting, that has become my modus operandi, not just for having podcasts, but for normal conversations. Oh, interesting. And, and, but then when I when I come home for dinner, like Thanksgiving dinner, yeah. you know, we have a big Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, you have these conversations before and during and after dinner. And the cadence and the format of the conversation <laughs> is often hard for me because oh. it becomes more just people 
talking about themselves and their lives in just this almost like a solipsistic fashion. And I just, it makes me crave, Mm -hmm. like, gosh, I wish I could just go have a question and answer format because the question and answer format is so much warmer. So what I wonder is, how do we convey that curiosity and that question and answer Mm -hmm. form? And I don't mean question and answer in like a super rigid, like everything has to be in the question and answer format, but just like the norm of curiosity, the Mm -hmm. norm of trying to have empathy in a conversation. Mm -hmm. How do we broaden that beyond the podcast world to more everyday conversations? It's such a creative way of thinking about this. And it's funny because on my end, what happens is the opposite, which is I find myself wanting to fast forward to 2x speed when people are talking to me. (laughs) I'm like, can you guys talk faster? Can we get more efficient about this? And it's also funny because I've gotten feedback from a lot of people that they wish I were my podcast self in real life more because I'm much more collaborative. I'm much more like having a conversation, engaging in a really intimate way, whereas I tend to be more isolated otherwise. So I think what you're saying is really beautiful. And because what you're saying is that is it possible that this form of media can change the way we converse in a more interactive, equal exchange really sharing ideas and raising the bar. And I believe if podcasting does spread as mainstream as it could, why couldn't it? Because isn't that how we all learn to communicate? Like there's a script we all learn from our parents, our family, our teachers, our friends. Why wouldn't we learn that from media? I mean, media has been known to change the way people have conversations in the world all the time. And so in much the same way that binge watching in TV form changed storytelling, what if the way we have conversations on podcasts becomes a way we talk to our friends and family. I don't think that's impossible if you're exposed to and listen to all the time as podcasting becomes more pervasive. You've interacted with so many technology entrepreneurs. If you had to identify one characteristic that separates the extremely successful entrepreneurs from the moderately successful ones, what would that trait be? My partners who are the investors would have a better point of view on that because they do that professionally. My vantage point on them is primarily through the lens of content, because generally when I interact with entrepreneurs as if they want advice for how to think about content strategy, because what I do is unique in that it's not just content marketing or editorial like from media, but the blend of both, which is editorial content marketing. And what I would say from through that lens, just to narrow my vantage point, that the most successful ones are those that have a point of view. They're not just chameleon, like only crowdsourcing insights but who also know how to listen and hear their team and know how to then take in those inputs and then bring that into their point of view. I think people who have the ability to communicate their ideas to other people, not just insiders, but broad teams inside their company and outside in the world are the ones who have an edge that no one else has. You seem to have a deep historical understanding of the developments of Stanford and academic research mm-hmm. and also industrial research. Yeah. And how do you know that? <laughs> like, <laughs> I've, well, I've listened to a lot of episodes. There seems to be so much money going into industrial research. Amazon puts so much money into research, Google mm-hmm. and Microsoft and so on. Is there still a place for academic research? And this is one of my favorite topics, too. So about why I have that perspective. So when I left grad school and I didn't know how to be a writer and I got into Columbia Journalism School, but I looked at the price tag and I was like, there's no way I'm going to pay that much money, nor could I afford it. And I was doing my PhD at the time. So a lot of my work was paid for. The tuition was paid for by NSF grants. And so the idea of paying that much money in tuition was unheard of. 
So what I did was I decided to learn to be a writer by just applying for jobs to just be a writer. And the job that I got leaving grad school was at Xerox Park, which is one of the leading industrial research centers. It was a captive research center to Xerox, became an independent company, still fully owned by Xerox. And I spent almost eight years there immersed in the deep, like immersed in this world, basically, which is why I have that vantage point, how research and R&D come about. When I was at Park, I saw the roadmaps of all these Fortune 500 companies and all these partners. And I saw like what uniquely big companies could do with deep investments in R&D. I also saw what government contracts could do with deep investments in R&D. And there were many things that startups could and could not do. But as you know, one of our views at A6NZ is software is eating the world. So I was still at Xerox Park when that op-ed came out. And I think Mark was absolutely right. Because what's happening is when you see things like AWS and all these tools and things that are now even democratizing the act of coding, you essentially have an entirely new way of creating things. And so there are things that are now only possible in startups. And at Park, we were competing on things that startups would be able to do faster. Like, why would we be doing this inside you know, an institution like Park? So here's my view on where academia and places like Park have a very special role to play that no one else can play. So where startups can move super fast on certain technologies and develop things in a way that no one else can, particularly because they're more close to the metal of the people. And government funding can help with doing really super far out things that nobody has any financial incentive to work on for 20 to 30 years. Where academic and special industrial research labs and captive corporate innovation labs, even including at places like Microsoft, can play a really special, unique role is where there's a true cross-disciplinary or multidisciplinary need to bring different fields together. The reason is because most institutions today are not set up for that type of collaboration. Park was really unique in that way. And by the way, it's not an accident that they were not a one-hit wonder. They had multiple repeat successes. So if you think about that, academia and industrial research can do really unique things across disciplines in ways that no one else can because they're not set up for that. One of my fundamental beliefs is Bill Joy's quote that the smartest people in the world will not ever all be working for you. I've been covered open source for like 10 years. I used to edit Richard Stallman. I did one of the early pieces on GitHub with Michael Rogers. He was at Node.js at the time. This world of open source is really the substrate that powers this entire viewpoint. However, I do think that as things like crypto become more mainstream, especially with networks of people who replace decentralized organizations, who replace companies potentially, that could be really interesting to see what new forms of collaboration happen. Is cryptocurrency more of an ideology today or is it a technology? So again, I just want to put another disclosure that this is none of this is investment advice because we're an RIA. This is not at all investing thing, but I have covered crypto as a trend since I was at Xerox Park. I actually put up, I think, one of the very first videos on Bitcoin. Hmm. And then at Wired, I was one of the first editors to put Ethereum in a headline because I commissioned an op-ed from someone about how to think about algorithms and law and blockchain with the idea of, of Ethereum. But my view on crypto is it's everything. It's a community. It's a technology. It's an incentive structure. It's a network. It's also a currency. And the currency is important because that is the way that you bring capitalism to open source, to quote my partner, Chris Dixon. And because I believe in open source and the problem with open source traditionally has been that how do you fund, like who maintains these networks and resources? How do you fund the operations? How do you align the incentives of people on the platforms, the people who are builders, makers, maintainers? So crypto is all a way to do that. We have a great resource on our website called the A6NZ Crypto Canon. If you're really interested in crypto, check that out and read some stuff. It lives up to the name. <laughs> Given your background in child development and your understanding of technology, 
what is the ideal amount and format of technology for a child's educational upbringing? I don't know how to answer that because I personally don't think there is a division between technology and anything else. Like technology is everywhere. A pencil is technology. So that's like asking what's the ideal division between a pen and a pencil and a kid, right? I mean, technically, these are all tools for innovation, building, making, or communicating and sharing ideas. That's what technology is. So to me, the ideal format is that everyone should have all of the technologies all the time. And again, it's it's not what you do, but how you do it. You know, it's not so much a debate about how much they should have or when they should do it, but how they go about it. Like, are they doing it in a healthy way, a detached way, a connected way? I think that's more important. I'll tell you one of my favorite anecdotes from when I was in grad school. I was working on a grant for early childhood education and numeracy in preschoolers. One of my favorite anecdotes is how there's natural organic behavior in children who are doing math every day without knowing it. They were doing things like counting exercises when they do hopscotch. They were doing things like when they're building a tower of Legos, like keeping track of, of modules and architectures. And they're like two and a half, three years old. And so what that tells you is that we are born with the ability to engage in technology and we should do a better job of harnessing it in our everyday lives without separating it falsely and arbitrarily. What are the biggest lessons you've learned from Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, <laughs> respectively? One, one from each of them. I love them both. They're such characters, too. So Ben and I have a lot of really interesting conversations. I wish we could open source our emails. He and I are very open and direct with each other about all topics related to inclusion. It's one of my favorite things. I'm pretty feminist, you know, and so we'll always talk about these topics. And I find him to be very eye-opening. So I learn a lot from him. And he's actually changed my mind on topics because he's so thoughtful about it. I'm not just saying that. I'm very fond of him. And Mark, he's one of my favorite people. And he sees really interesting connections between things and has a really interesting way of looking at the world. My favorite thing about Mark is he's information hungry. Like we're just constantly reading feeds and books and movies. And so I feel like he's very similar in that way. I just want to get in his head and figure out like what he's thinking about. I wish we could all do that all the time. But the good news is if you listen to ACNZ podcast episodes he's on, you can catch a little bit of that in his head. So what I've learned from Mark is, in fact, I would highly recommend the episode he and I did with Brian Koppelman. It was a real game changer for me because I had felt like sort of this pride and chip on my shoulder. You know, I felt a little persecuted as a creative in a company. You know, you always have this like chip on your shoulder as a creative. You're not getting credit. You're not getting this. It's like a, it's always a chip on your shoulder. And in that episode, he really shared some really eye-opening thoughts for how creatives can engage and really put their work and themselves out in the world. So I highly recommend that. And that's probably one of the best things I've learned from work. If I was to give you $2 million and ask you to go start a company, what would that company be? You're not the first person to ask that, believe it or not. People ask me all the time if I want to start a company or be a VC. I don't know. Of course, I would love to see more podcasting startups and more people podcasting. And I have a wish list of things that I want for analytics. I have a wish list of things I want for social and discovery and connecting with your audience and fans. I mean, I might start my own, go and start my own media outlet, but hey, that's, that's what we're doing here, actually. So <laughs> I'm not going to complain. What if I gave you a year to write a book? What oh, would that book be about? I'm trying to work on a book about editorial content marketing because I get asked all the time, like, you know, how do you think about strategy? So just some of the key ideas, like I have a lot of mindsets and principles that I brought to the A6 and Z operation that came from Park and Wired and that are now being played out at A6 and Z. And that is the thing that I believe grew our podcast. One thing about our model, just to give some quick context, is it is not a cult of personality show. And so I have a whole taxonomy of podcasting. And in that sense, it's not like the Joe Rogan show or something where people are going to listen to Joe Rogan and Elon Musk smoke pot for three hours. And for me, it was kind of a novelty to be on the podcast and host it. 
I never thought of myself as an editor who could actually also host. So that was a real eye-opener for me to grow into that. So I'm a big believer in first-person voices. Like that's the beauty of podcasts. You hear the person directly. I'm a big believer in editing. I think that people make the mistake with podcasts that they don't need to be edited. And again, if you're Joe Rogan and Elon Musk, sure, hang out for three hours. Everyone will listen. But everyone else, I'm sorry, no one gives a shit. So you need to edit. And I always train the editors, like you have five levers to pull, like you have energy, content, charisma, you know, there's all these different things. And so editing lets you manipulate those levers. So if you have a content that's low energy, but high on content, you can actually manipulate it. So some of the more interesting content comes to the front. And so there's lots of creative things you can do. I have a concept called writer topic fit, which is like modeled after product market fit. And it's cleverly, cutely, whatever, annoyingly WTF. And that's a really fundamental principle of the A6NZ podcast, which is that I don't want just a expert, I want the expert. And if not that expert, then the next best expert on the topic who has the expertise for it. So even on our own podcast, when portfolio companies come on, the board member won't necessarily be the person who's on it. I just look for the, who the expert is on the topic X, Y, or Z, that whatever that episode is topically about. So all of these things are things that I want to bring to the book because a lot of people ask me all the time. And then even on editing, like I have a lot of thoughts on, you know, op-eds and how everything is an argument piece. In fact, every podcast to me, every episode is an op-ed or a feature story. And so I think about it very specifically, like what is the argument we're making, even if we don't know up front? And then how do you edit it to get that arc out? And, you know, I have a principle I learned at Wired the hard way because I had to beat my way to the top of the leaderboard in that world. It was not easy because my mm. section was very under-resourced and it was kind of the stepchild. But one of the things I learned is the importance of having three turns of nuance and that long, like length is arbitrary. People have these religious debates about length, like how long or short should something be? And I'm like, it should be as long as it needs to be. And a lot of that stuff is what I want to put in my book. But if I finish that book, then the next book I'd want to write would be a book about dinosaurs. <laughs> you probably dinosaurs. don't want to ask about that on this episode. <laughs> All right, for the, next, for the next episode. Is there a tactical piece of wisdom about conducting a podcast episode that you learned in the last year? So as I onboard new people into learning and thinking about podcasting, which we're growing our editorial operations, I actually often say that the hardest work in a podcast happens before and after the episode, not actually during it. I think a lot of people think the hardest part is the actual podcast itself. So I don't actually prep for every episode, but you know, my boss, Margaret Wenmacher, who runs marketing at A6 and Z, teases me that, what are you talking about? You prep your whole life because you read all the time and you think about this stuff all the time. But it's how to really craft how the group of people should come together and then how you edit it in the post-production. And so on that note, I think a lot about insights per minute. Hmm. So I actually make sure we edit for what I call that IPM, because if you're not a cult of personality show, again, the only way to keep listeners engaged is to have a high ROI on every minute you're listening. So that's all the stuff that powers the thinking behind the A6 and Z podcast. And then probably the next important thing I've learned is the importance of distribution. I've had a background in content marketing before I went to Wired and came to A6 and Z, but it's not enough to just enjoy you know, the content because good content will always do well for sure. And I definitely have a track record with viral hits on that front all across the board. But you do need to package things in order to really get the audience that you want and grow the audience that you want. So that's a really important focus. And one of the reasons I hired a managing editor six months ago. So I'm super excited. All right. Final question. Do you yeah. have a newer podcast recommendation you can give me and why that podcast was valuable or new to you? Or do you listen to podcasts? So can I tell you, I actually don't listen to podcasts anymore. Oh, no. Okay. It's so depressing because I had this problem at Wired too. I used to love subscribing to magazines and then I stopped subscribing to magazines during that time. Similarly, I can no longer listen to podcasts. Wow. It just feels like I want to edit them all the time. <laughs> They're not even my, I feel like I'm working now. I need a break. I actually don't listen to podcasts anymore. I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> okay. Well, 
Sonal A16Z is my favorite podcast. Oh, it yay, has been for, you, for a long time. <laughs> thank you very much for producing it. And yeah, it's been been very influential on my own content. So Oh my God, that's very, great. Very great work. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. And thank you for what you do too. I love the questions. Okay, Sonal. Thanks for coming on. Wow.